0: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Five. The axis is now tilting and it's leaning very heavily towards this new elite.
0: Four. I think that public patience with this kind of selfish stunt is wearing very, very thin.
2: The debate has shifted. I do think now reasonable people can see that it is a question of technology rather than moral virtue.
1: It is very clear, I think, to lots of voters that they are now being subjected to a very openly political project that reflects the values of one group in society. One.
2: We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The London Marathon and this weekend's FA Cup final ties are under threat, co pilot, because the massed ranks of a standing army of Justins, Tabithas, and Jontys stand ready to protest. Earlier this week, a posh eco warrior from Just Stop Oil stormed the Crucible, Sheffield's Wembley Stadium of Snooker, sabotaging play by climbing onto the table and throwing around orange powder as a fellow spoil sport tried to glue herself to the hallowed Green Bay's. You call this a spiteful class-based attack, Alison, as privileged protesters targeted a sport beloved of the working masses. As a way of mobilising public sympathy for your cause, it does seem that Just Stop Oil made the foul stroke four away. Elsewhere, the SNP psychodrama continues. What will the impact of that be on a UK-wide general election expected next year? But on Wednesday morning, we learned that as measured by the Consumer Price Index, inflation remains at 10.1%, still in double digits, with the food price inflation in the shops up at 19.1%, an eye-watering 45-year high, despite wholesale food prices sharply falling. Another busy news week, Alison, but I wanted to start by mentioning something else before we dive in. Because it was in early June 2020, that Planet Normal listeners first heard us push back against the zoonotic explanations, <laughs> talking about a certain virus as an engineered escapee.
0: I like zoonotic explanations.
2: <laughs> there with no succomial.
0: Hasn't our vocabulary expanded? Thank you, Professor Gupta, and assorted key scientific advisors.
2: Assorted orthogonals.
0: Exactly. To
2: the orthodoxy.
0: Very orthogonal.
2: Pushing back against the triangle dust eaters. As Brian the fisherman said.
0: Yeah, we were certainly (laughs) orthogonal to the orthodoxy, as you say, Liam, very straight out of the blocks in June 2020 when we had Sir Richard Dearlove, former head of MI6M, fantastic person, always tremendous value, Sir Richard. And he did indeed tell us that piece of research by. Professor Gustav Dalgleish and Berger Sorensen had suggested that COVID 19 had not indeed come from a bat cave in China, but may have escaped from, guess what, the coronavirus <laughs> laboratory. <laughs> in Wuhan. Western funded laboratory. Western funded. Who on earth would have guessed that a novel coronavirus would jump out of a coronavirus laboratory? And indeed, now this week, we have, some might say a little tardily, but we welcome, don't we, Liam, we welcome all the converts, the US Senate report concluded this week that COVID-19 most likely came from a lab leak and was a, a in a research-related incident, as Sir Richard Dearlove called it, in June 2020, an engineered escapee. That's right, an
2: accident by the researchers, Chinese and otherwise, at the lab. They didn't mean for this virus to escape. They were experimenting with so-called gain-of functions, looking for ways to tackle viruses which is a completely legitimate thing to do, and COVID-19 unwittingly escaped. It wasn't mad
0: bats. Gain of function is sort of legitimate, Liam. I think that there are question marks over the fact that these experiments can make a virus more transmissible, which may be one reason that such research was banned by the Obama administration in the States. But you love this fact, Liam, the US Senate said that Chinese researchers may have begun developing two COVID vaccines in November 2019, which, if true, would be absolutely horrifying because that would mean that they knew this virus was on the loose and they were working for a remedy for it while it spread across the globe, killing millions. Of vulnerable people. And I tweeted at the time that made in China may one day become a badge of shame. And I was absolutely set upon by the monstrous regiment of Corbynists on Twitter. But boy, if that's true, then that's an incredible mark of shame against the Chinese, isn't it?
2: It certainly is. But how about the snooker loopies? You don't (laughs) remember that, do you? Chaz and Dave?
0: (laughs) No, I don't. Snooker
2: loopy, nuts are we? We're all snooker. Loopy, pop the red and screw back, yellow, green, brown, blue, pink and black.
0: Chas and Dave? Yeah, Chaz and Dave. Snooker Loopy. Oh, I have to look up it sounds like a masterpiece can I just say co-pilot that in your elegantly as ever crafted intro you mentioned the mass ranks of Justin's Tabithas and Jaunties. can I just say you are now woefully out of date because none of the new eco-brats have got any vowels in them at all so that character who jumped onto the green bays at the Sheffield Crucible goes by the name of Edred Llimir Whittingham now I'm Welsh so I can say that. So he's Edred. Ed the Red, I think we can call him. And then the second name is L-L-M-I-R, which even in Welsh is pushing it for lack of vowels. So Edred Llimir Whittingham. Positively
2: Serbian levels of lack of
0: vowels. Serbian levels of Croatian (laughs) levels of just pure consonants. And this kid has obviously taken his crazed propaganda to spoil the recreation of ordinary people who probably saved up and bought some nice tickets for the snooker. I got a little irate in my column this week about these people. And I do think, I don't know what you think, we've seen that animal rights people at the Grand National. And I think that public patience with this kind of selfish stunt is wearing very, very thin. And I was in town on Saturday, Mm. (laughs) nearly had an altercation with a just stop oil protester who was trying to force a leaflet into my hand. And I politely suggested co-pilot that he might like to go back to his house and turn off his heating and his lights and his television and all his other appliances and sit there in the dark and the cold for a preview of the life he's going to inflict on millions of British people should we follow his ludicrous advice.
2: I do think this action by Just Stop Oil wasn't just badly directed against a sport like snooker. I also think it was tin-eared in terms of its timing. We're just at the point now where a genuine debate is starting on net zero. Until very recently, you were seen as beyond the pale. It was almost like talking about engineered escapees relating to COVID-19 if you questioned the timing of the net zero proposals. But in recent months, of course, mines have been focused by the security issues, the energy security issues raised by the war in Ukraine, the prospect of outages. You know, The German car industry has lent very, very heavily on the European Commission. Their target for banning new petrol and diesel cars has been pushed back, not least because the car industry is wondering if it's got the actual capacity to meet that target, but also because other newer forms of technology are coming forward that may be just as good in terms of carbon reductions, but far less disruptive and make a lot more economic sense. I've always believed that it's technology, technology, technology that will solve carbon-related issues rather than hair-shirtedness and taking us back to sort of medieval hovels Mm. and the antithesis of human progress. It's become a moral crusade for so many people, of course, and all science has gone out of the window. And I do think there's a real lack of public patience now, even among broad-minded people who do want a cleaner planet and know that we have to refrain from burning fossil fuels endlessly. I think these actions by the likes of Just Stop Oil, when there are Very active democratic channels that they can use. They can get themselves out there and win by persuasion and advocacy, which is our tradition. Of course, protest is legitimate, but if you're a lobby group, you have to time the protest to advantage. So it looks as if you're actually making progress in terms of putting your cause forward rather than just indulging in some kind of personal crusade. And the look on the guy's face as he kneeled there with sort of orange powder all around his face, it looked as if he was absolutely intent on just shocking his parents and impressing his mates down the pub. It was a deeply counterproductive political move, in my view.
0: You know, I don't share your optimism that there is a shift in this attitude. We are still hearing the phrase climate change denier, just as we heard COVID denier barked at us. I lose the expression for their side of the argument, human life denier. And we did see this week, an episode of Panorama, road wars, neighbourhood traffic chaos from Oxford, where the imposition of LTNs, that's low traffic neighbourhoods, is causing public anger and street clashes. And there's apparently an obstruction on Howard Street in Oxford becoming, quote, probably the most abused bollard in the UK. Now, I think we are entering the realms of total and utter bollards here. But I still don't think, Liam, sadly, that both sides of the debate are being fairly featured at all as far as the BBC is concerned. The debate is settled. Justin Rolat is the BBC climate editor. There's some guy apparently who's got the creepy sounding job of BBC climate disinformation specialists. Can I just ask you, co-pilot, when do you think co-pilots Halligan and Pearson are going to be on the, the bien-panson side of an argument? And before you answer that, can I just say, where is their explanation as to how we are going to abandon oil, coal and gas by 2050 and get all our power from renewables, except we don't have a way to store electricity in very large quantities at very low cost. And while I share your hope, Liam, that we will be finding that technology, and I know great people are working on it, at the moment, there's no viable technology to do that. So these just stop oil trustafarian edreds are basically a kind of death cult who do not care about the harm and indeed the poverty that they're going to be inflicting on wider society.
2: I abhor the use of the phrase climate denier because, of course, it's a very clumsy attempt to elide anybody who scientifically questions how we use less carbon yeah. with The Nazis, which is absolutely disgusting. I do think the rhetoric's changed a bit. You still get complete idiots using that disgraceful phrase. Yeah. But you don't any more get mainstream politicians using that phrase the way you were a couple of years ago, Mm. because I do think the so-called Overton window of debate has shifted. Of course, you'd have to demolish the house of debate and build a new house 10 miles down the road for for us to be in the new Overton window, of course. (laughs) The debate has shifted, I do think now reasonable people can see that it is a question of technology rather than moral virtue that is going to get us out of this problem. Very few human practical problems were solved by deriding fellow people for being less virtuous than you are. We're a very ingenious race with huge amounts of intelligence and acumen and resolve. And there are technologies out there. For instance, the whole use of Hydrogen was until quite recently seen as pie in the sky. Government ministers are now taking it very, very seriously. You've got industrialists like Lord Bamford at JCB, Mm. in the States, in Australia, huge amounts of money going into the use of hydrogen, the conversion of renewable energy, wind and solar, powering electrolysis, converting it to hydrogen, turning the hydrogen into a liquid. That's how you can store renewable energy. I personally think the whole science of electric vehicles using extremely heavy batteries that use huge amounts of rare earths found often in China, Central African Republic, and other very difficult places geographically and geostrategically. it just makes no sense to me to spend most of the energy that the battery is producing transporting around the battery. I think there are better technologies, and yet government is steering everything down this EV route you know, the same civil servants who 15 years ago were giving us tax incentives to buy diesel cars, right? mm. Governments don't know what to do and what's going to happen when it comes to technology, because governments and civil services are staffed by people who are the least likely people in the world often to see these technical changes and to make them happen. So it is for me all about new technology. And I do think there are reasons to be relatively cheerful. The UK, While we still use some coal, not least because of huge conflict in in another part of Europe and sanctions on Russian oil and gas exports, we're using now just a fraction of the coal that we were using just 10 or 15 years ago. We are the country that's made more progress than almost any other advanced country when it comes to using less carbon. And in the end, that's how you're going to solve this. And people who just run around and disrupt sporting events because they think they are morally superior and know better than everyone else, completely deriding you know, the guy who's got to drive his tools in his van to work to make a living, mm. putting bollards in his way, so you know, stay-at-home laptop-class professionals have the freedom of the streets to ride their bike without any cars in the way. That's completely mad. If you want to ride your bike in a road with no cars, you know, go and live in the countryside.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Obviously, we've been making this progress, but I think there's immense sleight of hand. A number of Planet Normal listeners have written in to talk about the Drax power station, which is run on wood chips, which are imported from you know, thousands of miles away. There's an awful lot of sort of virtue signalling and greenwashing. Virtue there. signalling and, and hiding. We know we've got two or three big coal-fired power stations, which are kept on standby, Liam. For hundreds of millions of pounds, because basically the system is not safe and the lights could still go out. So I'd like to see some actual practical acknowledgement of that fact, not pie in the sky. And not setting
2: false deadlines.
0: Stupid deadlines. I spoke to Lord Frost the other day. And- He said he thought we could be looking at the year 3000 realistically, you know. It's not going to happen. We know it's not going to happen by 2035 or 2050. It's just not going to happen. Why can't we have a realistic discussion about that? But moving on to your own great area... Lots of economics in the news, inflation not coming down, co-pilot nearly as fast as the perennially useless Bank of England expected, and more pressure on the bank to go for another interest rate hike next month. I think that's that's the 11th interest rate hike since 2021, going up another quarter of a percent. Can you talk us through it? What's it going to take to get inflation under control?
2: Well, we had the news on Wednesday morning that inflation is still in double digits, 10.1% in March, food price inflation has actually accelerated. So whereas general inflation came down a little bit, though, still in double digits, food price inflation went up from 18% in February to 19.1% in March. That's a 45-year high. It's not because of Brexit, because in Germany, food price inflation is actually plus 20%. What's really going on here is that you've got falling wholesale food prices and rising Retail food prices. You've got a lot of very powerful food retailers, they will deny it, who are squeezing everyone else in the supply chain, using their purchasing power and using a generally inflationary environment to hike up prices and make huge amounts of cash at everyone else's expense. And th- this is a feature of Western mature post industrial capitalism. And I think the UK is among the worst countries. It's the same in the energy market. You've got falling wholesale prices. They're not being passed on or only being passed on very, very slowly. Same when you buy petrol and diesel. Same now when you buy food. And this is politically extremely dangerous because the less well-off families, the more vulnerable. They spend disproportionately a lot more on their food as a share of their total income and on their fuel and on their heating and on their utility bills than many of the rest of us. And it's going to be very, very difficult for Rishi Sunak to rely on any kind of feel-good factor in these upcoming local elections in early May, given that inflation is still in double digits, it's still more than five times the Bank of England's target. There's going to be another interest rate rise, one at least in May, and maybe one more after that. That will be the 12th and the 13th interest rate rise, respectively, in a row, up from 0.1%. We could see interest rates at almost 5% by the height of this summer. Now, I do think inflation will start to come down quite quickly in the early summer. And I do think that Rishi Sunak will still get his halving inflation target achieved by the end of the year. Not that it will be anything to do with him, of course.
0: Wow, do you? That's interesting.
2: I do. Mm. But I think this inflation number and the knock-on impact on interest rates and the lack of a feel-good factor coming through before the local elections is a very, very significant political development. You know, if it had been 9.8 rather than 10.1, then the whole psychology of where we are economically would be different. But them's the brakes, as a former prime minister once said. Inflation in America now is 5%, and in Britain, it's more than double.
0: So you wrote an excellent column in the Sunday Telegraph, which I actually read. And with great pleasure. Why is food inflation soaring despite tumbling wholesale prices? We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I know, Liam, that everyone listening, everyone I speak to, you don't have to be told that food inflation is soaring. I mean, it's just a kind of weekly visit to the supermarket. And I've got friends who've swapped from Tesco to Aldi and Lidl, and they're telling me now that even the cheaper supermarkets are jacking the prices up. And I think it is worth asking, is there some kind of informal cartel? Because it feels absolutely unlivable with for many, many families. Something I did want to ask you, Liam, is you're saying that you think inflation will still fall, but let's face it, the government has got public sector unions demanding substantial pay rises. And the Treasury's main position, it seems to me, has been that inflation-based rises are not an option because the rate is going to come down quickly this year. But we know that the first three updates on inflation this year have seen the rate stay above 10%. So they're facing, aren't they, a very tricky few weeks with the Royal College of Nursing balloting members to authorise strikes for another six months. While inflation remains high, even if you're saying it's going to come down, it's much harder for the government to hold the line, isn't it, that it's not going to give a pay rise that's linked to the very high inflation?
2: I think that's right, Alison, the fact that we are still in double digits as we reach the business end of a lot of these pay negotiations, is exactly what the government didn't want. This is going to cost the government billions of pounds more to settle these disputes than it otherwise would have because we are still in double digits. That's just the psychology of the situation. But I still think that inflation will be 5% or bar the shouting by the end of the year because as we move into the late spring and early summer, we will be in a situation where A year ago, a month or two or three after the war in Ukraine began, when food and energy prices were at absolute screaming highs, you'll have what are called base effects when a year on those prices are much lower. And suddenly energy, far from driving inflation in the CPI index, will be driving it downward, food prices as well. And it's that kind of gap, it's that kind of confusion of big, differences from one year to the next that I think the supermarkets are using this generally inflationary environment to push up prices. They'll deny there's any kind of restrictive practices, any kind of price gouging, any kind of cartel, because that would be illegal. They're not here to defend themselves. But at the very least, if I was the prime minister, I would be getting my advisors to phone the big bosses of the supermarkets. I'd call them into Downing Street. And at the very least, I'd make them walk up that road to number 10, so the cameras can get all of their faces as they go in and start turning the screw and putting some political pressure on them.
0: I still think the Conservatives are looking at a rout on May the 4th. Do you have a little sweepstake? How many seats are they going to lose? I'm going for 1,200. What say you, co-pilot?
2: I'll say 1,000.
0: Okay, you buy me a drink if I'm right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Two gin and tonics, <laughs> doubles. <laughs> so cheap as well, so cheap. Yeah, you're about the only thing that is these days. as a planet normal listener we're offering you three months of telegraph puzzles for just one pound tackle our brilliant brain teasers including word and number games for every level of ability all on our dedicated puzzles website and brand new app visit telegraph.co.uk slash puzzles dash planet normal today.
2: And now on to our latest Planet Normal guest. Matthew Goodwin is a professor of politics at Kent University. A prolific author and commentator, his latest book, Values, Voice and Virtue, just published by Penguin, is already a bestseller. In it, Professor Goodwin argues that what he calls a new elite of illiberal radical progressives, now dominates British public life, politics, the media, our civil service and other institutions. And that new elite is spreading ideas, insisting on behaviour, in fact, that appeals to just a small minority, says Professor Goodwin, some 10 to 15% of the broader population. I started our conversation by observing that, judging by the outrage on Twitter at least, Professor Goodwin's new book seems to have gotten up a lot of people's noses.
1: It certainly seems to be that way. Yeah. I mean, look, the book basically tries to explain the last 10 years of British politics. How did we get to this moment where we had Nigel Farage breaking through the vote for Brexit, then the post-Brexit realignment symbolized by Boris Johnson? And what I'm arguing essentially is that we have a new elite in the country, a new group of middle-class graduates who lean left on cultural questions like immigration free speech europe who we are as a country and they've basically lost touch with much of the rest of the country and lots of people who belong to this group have really not been happy about me pointing to them and have spent much of the last two weeks denying that they're even in this elite group so it's been a really interesting experience and actually liam it's an experience that's confirmed really my view as to what is going on in the country and has confirmed my view about just how out of touch people in this new elite are
2: at the heart of your book is the concept of hyper globalization and then you also coin this phrase about the new elite the new urban middle class graduate group who have come to wield enormous power as you put it let's just start with hyper what is hyper globalization and how did it change british politics
1: what I really look at is how the country over the last half century was really overturned by three things. The first is hyper this new economic model that I'll come back to. The second is mass immigration, which really kicked in around 2004 under New Labour. And then the third, linked to both of those things, was the hollowing out of our national democracy, the way in which many people were left feeling as though they no longer really had a voice Within the institutions and over the decisions that were affecting their daily lives, but hyperglobalisation was at the core of that. And really, I'm drawing on the work of the economist Danny Roderick, who was the first person to use that term. And it really refers to the liberalisation of finance, deregulation of the economy, big investment in essentially prioritising business and the markets. And in Britain's case, really doubled down on London and the southeast commuter belt and really began under Margaret Thatcher in the 1980s and then accelerated through the 1990s and under New Labour, who embraced much of Thatcher's legacy. And I'm not saying that all of that was negative, but what's now become clear, not only in Britain, but also the US, is that this new economic model also came with some very visible negative effects, particularly for working class voters, particularly for people outside of London and the university towns. And those effects, Liam were not only economic, but more fundamentally, and where I'm quite critical of the Conservatives, they were reflected in the collapse of communities, the weakening of family, rising levels of so-called deaths of despair or slow-motion suicides in, in the northern heartlands and elsewhere, and that this really did have some very negative social effects, which we can still see today. So hyperglobalization is really the sort of rise of this new economic model, worked very well for this new elite group, worked well for graduates, worked well for middle-class, us professionals, but it worked much less well for other voters, and I think that's a integral part of the story as to how we ended up with the political turbulence of the last decade.
2: But what's new about the new elite, Matthew? There have always been elites. Why is this one different? What do you think you've put your finger on here?
1: Yeah. So just to be clear, because some of the pushback to the book has been quite inaccurate. I think it's useful to think about an old elite and a new elite. And in the book, I'm quite open in saying, you know, we still have what you might call an old elite in the country that, you know, leans towards a conservative party, is is very visible in business, the donor class, you know, is is chiefly defined by wealth, by inherited titles, by membership of private clubs, and so on and so forth. And that old elite is is still very visible today, still wields enormous economic power. But what I'm arguing in the book is that increasingly in Britain and across Western democracies, the axis of power, if you like, is tilting away from the old elite towards this new elite who have been swept forward by the rapid expansion of universities. They're elite graduates, typically from Oxbridge And Russell Group institutions. Their parents tend to belong to the managerial professional classes. They often live in the cities and the university towns. And crucially, Liam, unlike the old elite, they have spent the last 20 years drifting leftwards on culture and identity. So they have embraced not just social liberalism, but they have increasingly embraced the ideology of radical progressivism. So they've become very wedded to making a passionate case for immigration, for being very strongly opposed to things like Brexit, feeling much less attached to the nation, to national identity, being more critical, if not repudiating national history, being convinced that Britain is an institutionally racist society. And that group, the sort of radical progressive group now presents about 15% of Britain. It depends what survey you look at. Some suggest it could be as high as 20%.
2: But about 80% of national newspaper columnists...
1: <laughs> but they are disproportionately dominant in the institutions, and this is what I'm arguing. So as the elite graduate class have drifted left on issues to do with culture and identity, what they're doing is they're now taking the institutions that they tend to dominate with them. And this is the bit that I'm actually most worried about looking ahead because if you look at, say, BBC, parts of the media, creative industries, cultural institutions, universities, schools, you know, I'm not saying there's a conspiracy here. What I'm saying is... We are living through what academics often call education polarization. So as graduates are drifting left on these questions, they are typically taking the institutions that they dominate with them and they're moving away from millions of other voters who are saying, actually, I don't feel comfortable with Mass immigration with it being even higher than it was before the Brexit referendum. I don't feel particularly comfortable with hyper globalization. I don't feel particularly comfortable with the loss of control of borders or with gender identity or with how we're teaching kids in school about issues to do with sex, gender and race. And these value divides that we've got that have been building for 10, 20 years, I actually think now are being really exacerbated by this new elite who have spent, ironically, much of the last two weeks pointing at my book and denying that they're even in this new graduate elite, which is clearly absurd. So the cultural power they wield is enormous. The social power they wield is enormous. It's certainly true there is another elite. There is a sort of struggle, if you like, within the British elite between an old and a new elite but I'm arguing in this book quite strongly that the axis is now tilting and it's leaning very heavily towards this new elite.
2: Matthew you are a professor at the University of Kent universities are central to the story that you tell in values voice and virtue you've said that in universities diversity is conformity what do you mean by that?
1: Well, there is no serious intellectual diversity anymore in the universities. To give you one statistic from the book, if you go back to the 1960s, left-wing academics to right-wing academics outnumbered them by about three to one. So universities have always leaned a bit to the left. Today, it's closer to 10 to 1. So in British universities, especially elite universities, Oxbridge and the Russell Group, you often find no serious intellectual diversity at all. And that's deeply problematic for obvious reasons. It means that within these institutions, which I would argue have become ideological monocultures that are really only dominated by one orthodoxy, those that don't conform with that, let's say historians who take a nuanced view towards British history, or let's say gender critical uh, scholars who who have a different view of of the relationship between sex and and gender, um, or let's say Brexit supporters or conservative academics, tend to find themselves being either harassed or having to self-censor on campus. And the reason I'm deeply concerned about this is is not just because of what I observe on campus and, and what I've been talking about through things like the Higher Education Reform Act, but also more generally, because I think From the universities come the next generation of leaders, come the next generation of CEOs and politicians. And if they're not being adequately exposed to the full range of ideas that exist in society, we're not really preparing them for the world that awaits once they leave the universities. So I actually think that both in Britain and the US, we've got a real problem actually with higher education and with the way in which universities increasingly appear to be turning in on themselves. And I don't think any serious academic who looks at the data can try and suggest that we don't have a problem here because we clearly do. So that's why I draw attention to it in the book.
2: Do you get shunned in the staff room? Do any students give you a hard time?
1: I think I'm very lucky working where I work. I mean, Kent itself is pretty conservative as an area compared to others. You certainly notice so-called chilling effects. You know, people essentially drift away or become openly quite hostile towards you. I think you only need to spend a few minutes on Twitter to see some of that. But I think what some of my critics don't realise is they're making the case for me. You know, I think if you're a young student who wants to go to university and thinks you're going to be exposed to a diverse range of views and beliefs or if you're somebody who is you know interested in my argument about the new elite but maybe is not convinced about my finding that they are often the most politically intolerant of all in British society I always say well go on Twitter and just look around look at the reaction that people get when they suggest some of these points look at the reaction that academics get when they say we do have a problem with free speech on campus or look at the reaction that this book has generated ironically from many of the same people that I'm talking about who really owe their positions of privilege to their parents have spent much of the last 10 years railing against all of the things that we saw in politics uh, are often the first to block or unfriend people who hold political views that they disagree with and this is a hallmark of the new elite. I mean all of the evidence that I pull together in the book really shows this around the tastes and the priorities. And the beliefs of this group, whether you look at the BBC homepage, whether you look at the adverts on television, whether you look at what's happening in primary schools, whether you look at university reading lists, it is very clear, I think, to lots of voters that they are now being subjected to a very openly political project that reflects the values of one group in society. I don't think that's something that you can really dispute, I think it's pretty obvious when you just look around the prevailing culture. And that is because this group that I talk about in the book, the new elite disproportionately dominate those institutions. So, you know, we need to give more space to groups who are not in this national conversation, who are barely visible in the House of Commons, and you have a very different set of values and voice. And that's what I'm saying in the book, we need to try and diversify our national conversation.
2: One statistic I wanted to draw attention to was you highlight a survey from 2016. It's the political affiliation of UK journalists. And among rank and file journalists, 56% um, lean left, 26% lean centre, and just 18%, less in one in five, lean right. Pretty incredible. How have we got to that point? And how have we got to the point where a lot of people, as you also say in the book, ...in the UK today feel they can't actually say what they think.
1: Yeah, so that particular stat came from the Reuters Institute at Oxford... ...who who looked at the political backgrounds and affiliations of journalists... And essentially what they point out, and they're spot on both in Britain and America, is the media class has basically been transformed over the last 20, 30 years. Local media, regional media have been completely gutted. It is almost impossible to rise up and become influential in media if you're from a pretty normal background and you haven't passed through one of the elite universities. And so what we're seeing now is about 90%, a little bit above 90% of all journalists in Britain belong to the graduate class and half of them have gone to Oxbridge and SKU is especially strong at the more senior levels. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with people who have that background, but as an industry, as a profession, you know, as the adjudicator in many respects of our national debate, I do think that's a bit of a problem in terms of the lack of diverse views and people with different backgrounds who are actually able to make it into the corridors of power. What you then see is as the graduate class moves left on cultural questions, you know, they tend to take the newspapers and the magazines and the platforms that they're working in with them. So, you know, I'm constantly told by senior journalists at very well-known newspapers that the junior journalists coming in now often don't even view themselves as journalists. They view themselves as activists who are there to try and change the system, to try and advance a particular set of ideological goals. And of course, you know, old school journalists would say, you know, they're there to search for truth and so on. And of course, everybody has their priors. But I think the media, one reason why public trust has been falling in the media is because I think people can see openly now that they are being subjected to a more openly political worldview. And that's fueled this sense among many people that they're not really able to say what they really think. There's an American academic who refers to this as the rise of the new epistemic class. And he argues that essentially You know, the way in which we think about knowledge and consume knowledge and reflect on knowledge and debate who we are is now really dominated by a small group of people who not only sort of advance their own particular view of the world, but also shun and silence those who try to challenge their sacred goals. And I think whether you refer to this as political correctness, whether you refer to it as radical progressivism or wokeism, we can all sense That the public debate has become very shrill and has become very dogmatic and those who do challenge a consensus by saying okay i don't know let's have less immigration or let's not let kids have gender reassignment surgery or let's question issues around sex or gender or race people can sense there are now very real social effects and consequences if you choose to openly challenge this narrow liberal consensus. And that's reflected in the data, Liam. I mean, about 60% of people in Britain now say openly, not to my surveys, but to YouGov, that they feel that they can't really say what they want to say anymore, because they're fearful of the consequences of what might happen if they do. And that, to me, is a reflection, again, of how the new elite are imposing these speech codes and this very narrow interpretation of who we are and what we're allowed to talk about.
2: In the book, you talk about counter-revolution. You talk about the emerging backlash that these trends are going to generate. What form does that take?
1: Well, I think over the last decade, the way that I look at British politics is we've had these three big revolts. We had Nigel Farage's populism, the vote for Brexit, and then we had the the Boris Johnson-led realignment. I think all of those really were fundamentally about a pushback to this liberal consensus. I think what you can see in the data now is really a sort of looming Pushback to to really those rebellions. I think if you look at how young Zoomers from Gen Z are, are moving sharply left in politics, about 85% of 18 to 24 year old graduates say they're going to vote for Labour or Liberal Left parties at the next election. If you look at how young women are moving sharply to the cultural left much more quickly than their male counterparts. If you look at how the graduate class is now overwhelmingly pro-Labour, if only graduates had voted at the last election, Jeremy Corbyn would currently be Prime Minister. And also if you look at how Britain's minority ethnic voters are voting, about 80 to 90 percent are voting Labour. So what you can see, I think, is an emerging push, a kind of new era of progressivism. I think those voters will likely push back hard against the Conservatives and against Brexit and against many of the things that we've seen over the last decade. You know, we'll be in this place where politics is always cyclical. I mean, it tends to move in cycles and realignments tend to move in cycles. And I think we are very much on the cusp of seeing, you know, I think a new counter-revolution to what what we've been living through over the last 10 years or so. And I don't say that in the sense that I'm looking forward to. I think it's going to bring a lot of challenges around free speech around how we, you know, think about identity politics, how we think about the constitution, how we think about the United Kingdom. I mean, you can see it in the data it's coming. And I think we're on the cusp of something that's going to be just as profound as the last decade was. Professor
2: Matthew Goodwin, thanks so much for joining us on Planet Normal.
1: Thank you, Liam.
0: Gosh, he's articulate, isn't he, Copilot. I'm a huge fan of Matt Goodwin. I think Values, Voice and Virtue is a very important and a timely book. Because I think what we're looking at, what he's describing, is the deep polarisation of society, as you described, as you drew out of him. The many people who lead, dominate our institutions, so out of touch with the views and feelings of the majority of people and uh as Matt says, you know, on the cultural left, compared to the majority of people who do repeatedly say in opinion polls, they want strong borders, they value strong families, they don't think we're an institutionally racist country, despite constantly being told that we are. They aren't ashamed of their country. And it was very interesting. You mentioned, Liam, about certain of the people, class of the elite that Matt Goodwin mentions in the book, how reluctant they are to own that phrase or to acknowledge their intellectual and cultural dominance. And and I was reminded actually that David Aronovich, who was until recently a Times columnist and has broadcasts on Radio 4, and Aronovich commented on Planet Normal and laughed at the idea that we, you and I, were bringing views from beyond the bubble because he said it was hard to think of two people who were more in the media elite than you and I. And I thought what he got wrong was not that we're both not successful in the media, although you and I would say we probably had more struggles than people from privileged backgrounds, but we don't resent any colleagues. Planet Normal is not about class hatred. You know, we have listeners who are privately educated, state educated, people from all age groups, all backgrounds, and we celebrate that. But I thought what Aronovich was really missing was that what you and I bring to Planet Normal and what I think listeners value is the fact that we will not be conformist. You know, we think diversity is not conformity. Diversity is valuing the opinions of many, many millions of people in this country who are increasingly told, as you said, that they're not supposed to think like that. They're not supposed to say it, but they do. And my real fear now, and I think Matt Goodwin has got his finger on something, is we are going to become more like America, which gave rise to Trump because fundamentally millions of people were being told that their gut instinct were not just wrong, but deplorable.
2: A basket of deplorables, as Hillary Clinton said, as she threw away (laughs) the 2016 (laughs) presidential election in a single sentence. (laughs) I do think Matt Goodwin is a very interesting guy. He's relatively young. He's got a lot of writing ahead of him, and he deserves his emerging status as one of the most important political commentators of our time and he's more than just a sort of political philosopher or a pundit he's actually a political scientist because reading his book which has just been published by penguin as i said values voice and virtue he's very very good at wielding survey evidence and polling Mm. evidence very granular data he's very comfortable with data he writes about data in a compelling and arresting Way, interspersing it with stories of real human experience. So it's a fact heavy book, but it's still a good read and it deserves the growing audience that it's getting. I think the difference between lots of people who tend to lean right and lean left on different issues, and we see this in the media, is I think people who are tribally on the left cannot understand why anybody thinks differently to them. They're so fired up Mm. by their own moral and often social superiority that they think everyone who disagrees with them is stupid or evil or just a pleb that can be dismissed. And that's completely wrong because the vast majority of the country are certainly in our lifetimes are broadly centre to centre right if anything the vast majority of the country Mm. live on relatively modest means they have to balance household budgets they don't believe you can just keep spending government money and so it strikes me that the media dominated by offspring of very wealthy people now because the route through local papers has all but gone where people who had been to a, a local university or no university came up through local titles, got their place in Fleet Street, and they brought to the table. They brought to the national newsrooms of the country, both print and broadcast, genuine knowledge of how ordinary people live in towns and cities outside of London and the South East. You touched on it briefly, Alison. You know the housing problem in the capital in your column. This week also, that's another barrier to entry for young people from around the country, not from posh professional backgrounds to get into the media. Obviously, we're focused on the media. It's what we do. But it's the same in politics as well. There's a tremendous passage in the book where Matthew talks about the lack of representation, our genuine representation in the House of Commons. With very few working mm-hmm. class people, very few non-graduates in the House of Commons. You know, huge swathes of MPs on both sides of the aisle. All they've ever done is politics. They've been a researcher at a trade union or they've been a special advisor to a minister. Then they get a safe seat and they know nothing of real life. I would actually prefer it if our politicians, almost as a requirement for becoming a member of parliament, spent 10 or 15 years in the real world with a real job, You know, whether they're teachers or working in industry, or working in a factory, whatever it's doing, because so much of our political and media class is woefully out of touch, it's dangerous, and Matthew Goodwin's latest book really captures that growing distance, and that's why I think it got up so many people's noses.
0: Now onto our listener emails. The messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading them and we do learn so much from you, the citizens of Planet Normal. In fact, our first email, Liam, it's a complicated story and I hope we'll talk a lot more about it in the episodes to come. But last week we discussed the Bud Light, Budweiser Light, the global beer brand, using a trans person, Dylan Mulvaney, to advertise the product and the huge, vast amount of sales that they've lost on account of that tone deafness towards their market. And Liam, we asked, didn't we, why would certain companies spend so much on a kind of marketing that alienates their audience? And Bruce wrote a very long email, which I'm just going to pause a bit. Dearest Velma, you ask why companies would spend so much money on marketing and then desert their audience – The answer is something called the Corporate Equality Index, launched in 2002 by the Human Rights Foundation as part of the broader ESG DEI, that's Diversity Equity Inclusion Initiatives, This is where woke meets the business world. Some say it's been adopted by big business along with existing regulatory requirements to pile yet more misery on smaller players to marginalize them. But the effect of this is to focus companies on these indexes rather than earnings to impact their share price. The most important indicator these days of management competence. It's basically if you've ticked all the boxes relating to equality and green credentials you can be deemed a success rather than actually making any money for your company. I'm very grateful to Bruce Liam for pointing out this thing. If any listeners have got any more insight into the corporate equality index, please do let us know because this seems to be what's driving the woke trends in advertising for major companies.
2: This is from Peter, responding to some of my writing on inflation. I'm old enough, writes Peter, to have been in a senior finance job during pay and price controls and extreme inflation in the 1970s. The government regime was flawed, but partially effective. I would not consider such a system today, but I expect that this and other nations are being ripped off by the supply side of the economy. I do think an authoritative, independent body could and should be set up urgently with real powers to investigate a wide range of price movements." We all know that commerce in all its forms is quick to raise and slow to reduce prices. Let's get some of these facts in the open.
0: Very good suggestion. Andrew says, my wife and I have listened to every episode of Planet Normal. Great. Even I haven't
2: listened to every episode.
0: (laughs) You've been in every episode. Uh, God forbid you should listen to what I'm saying. It's been great to know that there were journalists and independent-minded experts in their fields who were orthogonal to the orthodoxy, to use Jeanette's phrase. Woo. I fear the UK government is embarked on similar thinking with net zero as it was with COVID, which will have disastrous consequences. One, becoming transfixed on a singular focus, net zero by 2050. Two, listening to a narrow set of opinions on the science to the exclusion of dissenting voices. Three, reliance on modelling and worst-case scenarios, which have already been shown to be wrong. Four, going along with a fear-driven agenda, which is partially being set by extremists like Just Stop Oil. Five, failure to fully understand the implications of aiming for net zero. There are no detailed plans, but lots of aspirations. Electric cars by 2030, gas boilers gone by 2035 etc. Any realistic assessment, says Andrew, would see the costs are going to be enormous and the UK has actually passed legislation committing to net zero, thank you Theresa May, where other countries only have targets. It seems the UK and much of the developed world could be repeating the mistakes made with Covid. With Covid it was clear after a couple of years that poor judgments were made causing huge economic and social costs I believe with climate change, we are following the same orthodoxy as COVID, but the economic cost could be of an order of magnitude even higher than COVID. And it may take 10 years to realise this mistake. Replacing fossil fuels as our primary source of energy is a huge challenge because hydrocarbons are very energy intensive. Most replacement energy sources have significant capital requirements or will lead to higher operating costs. Consider heat pumps versus gas boilers. I'm in favour of pursuing renewables. But we must assess the true economic costs through serious planning of their use. With a pandemic now over, could challenging groupthink think on climate change become a worthwhile cause for planet normal? The same format with expert interviews, etc. I am not a climate change denier, says Andrew, any more than I was a COVID denier. I am a scientist, and I think we need a much wider debate about achieving net zero than is currently happening. Please keep up your great journalism, Andrew. Well, I think we broadly agree with that, Liam, don't we? We want to shine a light on more orthogonal to the orthodoxy.
2: There's definitely a debate to be had, and and that's the point. There hasn't been a debate up till now. There's just been certain people ramming their views down other people's necks, and that is never the right way to do things in a democratic society. Finally, Alison, here's Lucy talking about the Just Stop Oil Massive. Whenever these (laughs) vile brats perform one of their pathetic stunts, I make a concerted effort to go to Tesco in my 4.8-litre jag and buy a large brisket of beef. I then go home and put the gas and plastic in the general waste and turn on every appliance in my house. (laughs) Exclamation mark. (laughs) And here's Jane on Edred the Eco Warrior, silly little boy. Does he not realise 6,000 everyday products we all use, including his fellow Just Stop All Ignoramuses, are part and parcel of our lives. He's wearing trainers, he uses toothpaste, no doubt he wears sunglasses, uses antiseptics, has a CD player, even car battery cases are the by-product of petroleum. Will he forgo anaesthetics if he needs surgery? I'll bet my boots he'll demand painkillers too. The blatant ignorance displayed by these people is mind-blowing, says Jane.
0: Well, I think Edred having an operation without anaesthetics shortly after storming the Sheffield Crucible would be an extremely popular move. And finally, Bruce says, here's one for Liam. What do you call a journalist of Irish descent?
2: Liam Halligan. (laughs) I've no idea.
0: Column Inches. (laughs)
2: And... <laughs> Fair enough
0: Sorry I've got a very childish sense you. I quite like that Go on off you go
2: <laughs> I'm allowed to say Irish jokes It's a joke I heard in childhood What do you call an Irishman Who bounces off walls Rick O'Shea <laughs> And so that's it from Planet Normal On that politically incorrect bombshell For another week As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason Our flying refuge of reason views. email of the week It's Alison's turn
0: Email of the week. It has to be Lucy for her defiant driving her very large and environmentally unfriendly Jaguar to Tesco to pick up a giant hunk of red meat to affront the Edreds. So, Lucy, if you send us an email to planetnormal at
2: telegraph.co.uk with mug winner in the subject heading and give us your postal address, we'll send you a Planet Normal mug. We have a public service announcement. Alison and I are taking a rare week off next week, so there is no Planet Normal next Thursday. But we'll be back the week after that in time for the local elections. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bujard, Elliot Lampitz and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him.